Perceptions Podcast. What if marriage, at its very best, exists to remake us into beautiful new creatures we scarcely recognise? What if, in some cosmically weird way, escaping a hard marriage is not how you change? Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? Did Daisy really love George? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, it is a question, but what makes it interesting? Here's what. My wife Jill and I were in the Barossa Valley region of South Australia recently. It's the famed wine region settled by German migrants some 150 years ago. And it feels, well, not surprisingly, it feels a bit German. There's a Lutheran church, sometimes two, in every town. The villages have that old European feel to them. The famous wineries, many of them German, populate the area. It's hot and dry in summer, but there's enough of a seasonal change too. We were there because I was doing a wedding near a pretty little town full of funky cafes, craft and specialty stores, very upmarket and tasty, rows of bluestone houses and buildings, uh, Bluestone's a building material typical of the region and of South Australia in general, so it's beautiful. The wedding was, of course, in a lovely Lutheran chapel, replete with heavy stone font, stained glass, and the timber and whitewashed ceiling signalling the hull of an upturned boat. The vows were said, deeply religious, traditional vows, under the generous eye of the local pastor watching on, a young, well-thought-out man who looks after eight country churches on a rotational circuit, including the one near the town where our quaint little Airbnb was. The town where the question was asked, but did Daisy really love George? Now how did that question come about? Well, Jill and I were out on the day of the wedding buying some last minute Christmas presents in those little shops, when one shop in particular caught our eye. It was called Daisy loves George. It set it on the window and the things inside were beautiful. The shop was beautiful, filled with lovely stationery and solid old style pens and paper. Wonderful retro wrapping paper. Diaries made out of recycled materials inside old style leather binders, that sort of thing. And competing with all that loveliness, a large black wall, a brick and plaster screen really, hiding the back of the shop, with a resin sign on it, handwritten, Daisy loves George. And next to it on the wall, also handwritten, a reminder that in the past, people like Daisy and George once wrote each other actual letters on actual paper with actual pens and expecting an actual reply, an RSVP it was called. And you were expected to turn up if you RSVP'd in the affirmative rather than waiting to see if a better offer came along 
via text message. So old worldy. We got to talking to the owner, first to say how beautiful her shop looked, and then of course to ask, who are Daisy and George? As it turned out, Daisy and George were her great-grandparents, born into an era of solid stationery and solid relationships. Now they were dead by the time the owner was old enough to remember, but there had been a great aunt who was their daughter, and she told the story of Daisy and George. 60 years of marriage, Daisy following George out to the farm, six children, a tough life looking after them in the harsh South Australian dry, Daisy by George's side the whole time. And then, as she finished recounting, the shop owner, the great-granddaughter, a woman in her late 40s whose stylish look and swept-back hair reflected the graphic designer she was, asked this question, almost rhetorically. But did Daisy really love George, and what does that mean anyway? Would we understand their definition of love? It seems like a different time. And with that, we got to chatting about life now, as opposed to then, about our young adult children about what they were doing, about what they expected of relationships. And she said, which was interesting, a lot of my daughter's friends are in long-term relationships. It feels like people are getting together younger and staying together longer. Which, if you think about it, is true and not true, isn't it? It's a Charles Dickens best of times and worst of times experience from where I can see it. It does indeed feel like there was a group that is getting together and in some cases, marrying younger. But there's also a group that's doing the endless online dating life, serial dating, not even serial monogamy anymore. To coin a phrase, they're bumbling their way through Tinder. The world today is a long way from the Daisy Loves George way of doing things. Not simply switching out handwritten RSVPs for a quick text, but very different from 60 years in the harsh sun, six kids on a farm, and doing it tough and together all that time, and wondering what actually is love. And yet, just like that stationery shop, today there's a desire for something more, something more than the endless swipe left or swipe right. Despite the you-do-you culture that we live in, the Daisy Loves George story is as evocative and compelling as the stationery in the shop, is it not? I'd like to think so. And my hunch is kind of confirmed when I watch the modern philosophers of our day, the comedians, the edgy, say-it-like-it-is guys and gals who swear and laugh and call you out and make fun of you. Here's what I've found. Every second joke on an Instagram reel is about a dating app, though I say joke advisedly. Every second painful story, painful relationship story, short and painful, is sprinkled with funny but cringeworthy moments. The audience laughs, not with surprise, but with recognition at another failed online dating relationship. Love not on offer amidst the lust, the sexual failures, betrayals and tender disappointments. Nary a Daisy or a George in sight. Yet somehow, were still impressed enough by Daisy and George to write their names on a sign in the window and wish for something more.
So what's going on? Here's what I think. There's a coming apart, two tribes, one that will scan the increasingly insecure surrounds of our late modern age and decide, you know what? I'm going to find a companion to get through this thing with, come hell or high water. And there's another tribe altogether that says, well, you're on your own, make of it what you can, and better to stay on your own. For as talking heads say in their classic song, Life During Wartime, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no foolin' around. No time for dancing or lovey-dovey. I ain't got time for that now. Life during the wartime of the modern age, the wartime of modern dating, modern relationships. Best to stay stripped back, solo, and prepared. Which kind of brings me to the wedding I did in that small town in my homily, which seemed longer than the 16 minutes it was as we stood in the late afternoon in that church with the sun refracting through the stained glass. In that short sermon, I compared two views of marriage, two competing views that are indeed contemporary. One, an exuberant challenge to the withered husk of cynicism that the other displayed. In Harrison Scott Key's new book, How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told, Harrison Key says these words. Now listen up, it's longish, but it's worth it. Here's what he says. The prophets of this present age would have us believe marriage should exist solely for the benefit of the people in it, for their emotional, psychological and carnal empowerment, as though matrimony is merely an extended couple's spa experience, featuring fulfilled desires and explosive self-actualizations that you can exit whenever your heart desires. What if the prophets are wrong, he says? Are we not freer than ever in human history and sadder and more anxious, more wretched? What if marriage, at its very best, exists to remake us into beautiful new creatures we scarcely recognize? What if, in some cosmically weird way, escaping a hard marriage is not how you change? What if staying married is? What if the prophets are wrong, he says? Which prophets? Well, prophets like Australian author and provocateur Clementine Ford, who also has a new book. Her latest book is called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage. Ford holds out less hope for marriage. In fact, she doesn't even want hope for marriage. Here is Ford in her own words about her book. I want this book to end marriages, she says. But more importantly, I want it to prevent marriages. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. Ford's work is a searing indictment of men in marriage, their subjugation of women, and how the Judeo-Christian worldview has led to that, and all in the context of her having left her long-term relationship recently, not without a fairly loud clang and clatter across both mainstream and social media, it must be added. Both Key and Ford believe marriage is something more than we could envisage. The only difference, Key thinks something better and Ford thinks something toxic. And each of them is trying to bring you around to their point of view. To be honest, the last 50 years of Western thought has redefined and redefined and redefined marriage and romantic relationships in general. Almost to the point that Daisy Loves George is met with either an uncomprehending stare, or anger, or pity, or both. 
In his book, Sex and the Eye World, Dale Kuhn, with the exquisite job title of Professor of Ethics, Economics and the Common Good at St Anselm College, contrasts these two colliding worlds we see. He calls one the tea world, the traditional world of Daisy and George, and the other one, our world, the eye world, the individual world that Key and Ford speak into, though in vastly different ways. Dale Kuhn says that the tea world, the traditional world, is concerned with relationships of mutual obligation, a farm to be managed, six children to look after, a husband to feed, a wife to provide for. And the I world? Relationships of personal choice, he says. Swipe right or left, launder, rinse, repeat. Though if it works and you land the right one, then why not? Cohabit, perhaps marry. But if it stops working, and Ford writes into a context that for women at least is vastly different to Daisy Loves George. Economic and social power means that women don't have to stay trapped in a violent marriage or a loveless marriage or a neglectful marriage or any marriage. Ford envisages a brave new world of no marriage because that's how you get the best out of yourself. Key, on the other hand, envisages not merely a completely different operating system, but a completely different source of marriage. You see, Ford and Key are in furious disagreement except for this one matter. Both are convinced that the story of the Bible is central to the Western world's historical understanding of marriage. The only thing they differ on is as to whether that marriage is a good thing given to us from God above or a bad thing imposed from religion beneath. The key, as it were, to Key's understanding of marriage and his hope for it and our ability to stay within it is found in those words. What were they again? He says this, What if the prophets are wrong? What if the Clementine forwards of this age, fated by all of the media, are wrong? Now, Key points out the obvious problem with the eye world. He says this, Are we not freer than ever in human history, and sadder and more anxious, more wretched? Indeed, the stats would say we are. And then he asks this of us. What if marriage, at its very best, exists to remake us into beautiful new creatures we scarcely recognise? What if, in some cosmically weird way, escaping a hard marriage is not how you change? What if staying married is? Now, it's got a caveat there at its very best. But let's unpack this. What if the purpose of marriage is to make us better? What if there is something cosmic about all of that, cosmic and weird? What if counterintuitively, marriage changes you, hard or easy marriage, towards something better, towards someone better? What if the I world of personal relational choice and its promise of a better you is a bit of a lie? What if the T world of relationships of mutual obligation, the Daisy Loves George world that spawned six kids, and the idea behind a beautiful stationery shop, by the way, is the truth? It would be counterintuitive to believe that, surely. The prophets of this age, Clementine Ford, the R-rated comedians, they're of a common mind. They think that bumbling through Tinder is what we are left with, and the occasional expression of astonishment 
when a couple in the audience confesses to double-digit years of matrimony. That seems to be the shtick. So where's it all headed? Well, despite my breezy optimism and the tendency for some young people to stay together from younger and for longer, the actual stats point to something different altogether. Now, while these stats are from the United States, there's a good chance they stand true for Western nations influenced by the US. So the stats are saying that the percentage of millennials born in the 1990s getting married is sharply lower than even those born in the 1980s. For the millennials, that's under 30% married. Those born in the 80s, around 60%. Of course, people get married older these days too. Cohabiting is almost the norm. But compared to my generation, born in the 60s, above 80% married. Even those in the post-sexual revolution bust of the 70s is just under 80%. And maybe this thing hasn't bottomed out. Add in hyped up or well-documented fears around just about everything in terms of population, climate and economic disaster, and you get life during wartime when it comes to relationships. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. No time for dancing or lovey-dovey. I just ain't got time for that now, and that seems to be borne out by the stats. So where is it actually headed? Not sure. (laughs) One thing is certain, traditional communities, religious communities, marry younger, in greater numbers, and have more children, and have them earlier. If we were going on purely demographics, a post-traditional life of no marriage, the I world, may hold sway for a while, but it will eventually fall off the cliff. Sheer numbers will eventually wipe away those gains. Ford's vision is actually not the future. In fact, it's not even the present in most places around the world. And there's something about Daisy Loves George that gets to the heart of it, perhaps. Not actual Daisy and George, but the idea that spawned a stationery shop in which the older things, the ancient ways, the timeless crafts, the careful and generous effort and promises written in ink that are far less easily erased than a text message all point to. You see, people in these uncertain times, people young and old, are looking for something secure, older than themselves to land on. And I conducted a wedding in an old church in South Australia, let's face it, because people want something older than themselves. The bride and groom chose traditional vows because they wanted something older than themselves. They did the for richer and poorer because that has been true, is true, and they hope it to be true. And they did until death parts us, because they also want that to be true. And they did it all because they believe in marriage in a weirdly cosmic way, as Key would say, a way that's as clunky and curious as ink pens and writing paper in the 21st century. Does that mean everyone will turn to marriage again, eventually? Of course not. But it does mean that marriage its weird cosmic meaning might just come into play again. It might mean that the shocking relationships won't be the shacking up or the Tinder cycle, but the Daisy 
loves George relationships. Just like that shop, you won't be able to walk past those sorts of relationships without giving a sideways admiring glance. It may cause friends to gasp and avert their gaze, but it may also cause them to ask with curiosity, what's this cosmically weird thing you keep talking about? What does it mean? How can we do it? How can you do it? And might it provide some meaning for us too? What if indeed the prophets are wrong? Podcast.